Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, if you've listened to a few of my sermons, then you probably have noticed that I love to watch movies. I especially love movies that have powerful storylines, teach a little history, and provide some engaging action scenes. The movie industry calls these docudramas. One of my top 25 favorite movies is a 2003 release called The Last Samurai, starring Tom Cruise and Ken Watanabe. This epic drama is set against the backdrop of 19th century Japan that is struggling to modernize. American infantry officers are brought to Japan to train the Imperial Army in Western military tactics and to arm them with the latest weaponry. Inspired by true events and actually based on books written about this period in history, The Last Samurai exposes the tension between preserving the past and the need to uh, keep up with the times, to modernize. The emperor and his army are on one side fighting for modernization while a clan of samurai warriors are on the other side fighting for tradition. The climax of the movie is a colossal but tragic battle between these two groups. The emperor's imperial army ends up using howitzers and rifles and Gatlin guns to overwhelm the swords and bows and spears of the samurai for a decisive victory. The battle underscores the principle that soldiers have known for centuries, and that is that superior firepower almost always outperforms inferior weapons in war. Therefore, if you bring the wrong weapons against a formidable enemy, you'll suffer a crushing defeat. One of the reasons we are seeing so many defeated, ineffective Christians is that they are using human squirt guns in a spiritual war that requires divine tomahawk missiles. Superior firepower is available to them, but for some reason, they are not using it. We're concluding our series today in the book of Ephesians called Chosen. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Ephesians chapter 6 and to pull out the sermon notes you received when you arrived this morning. If you forgot to grab a sermon note handout, there should still be some on the welcome table in the back of the room. If you've got your Bible, you can borrow one of ours off that table as well. Something that I forgot to mention last week in part one of this message that I really wish I had 
is the fact that the city of Ephesus was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That is, the great temple of Artemis. I, 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 I remember, and I actually went back in my manuscripts, and I looked all the way back to November of 2019 when I started this series. And I did mention the temple of Artemis being there, but uh, something I wish I had mentioned last week, and I want to make sure I get in today, is the fact that there was significant spiritual demonic strongholds in Ephesus. And I think that is in part why Paul was writing what he is here in chapter 6 about spiritual warfare. Artemis was the Greek goddess of the hunt and fertility. Not only was Ephesus home to thousands of Artemis idol worshipers, it was also the unofficial headquarters for those who practiced sorcery, black magic, exorcisms, and astrology in the entire region of Asia. We know this from what Luke recorded in Acts chapter 19, when some of the Ephesian citizens trusted in Christ and sincerely repented of their sin after hearing Paul preach the gospel. Here's just a few verses to give you a sense of what was happening in the city from Acts chapter 19. Luke writes, also, many who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, here's, here's something we don't want to miss. I, I researched this and was blown away when I found this out. The financial value of the cult materials that were burned in the city center of Ephesus that day gives us a sense of just how big the spiritual stronghold Satan had over this city or how strong the stronghold was. 50,000 pieces of silver you might want to write this down. This is really amazing. 50,000 pieces of silver is approximately 159 years of an average man's wages. Taking only the Sabbath off each week. I'm going to say that again. Just get your mind wrapped around this. This is like a lottery check here, okay? 50,000 pieces of silver is approximately 159 years of an average man's wages taking only the Sabbath off each week. No vacations. No, no funerals. No sick days. Or another way to put it, one piece, one silver piece was the equivalent of one drachma. If you have the NIV translation, you're probably seeing that word there. One piece or drachma could purchase one sheep. So this much money could purchase a flock of 50,000 sheep. Thus, it's no surprise then, as Luke continues to chronicle in Acts chapter 19, what happened in Ephesus. It's in, uh, you can read it later, Acts 19 verses 23 to 34. There's a riot that started by a man named Demetrius. 
Demetrius was a a silver maker, uh, uh, an idol maker for Artemis. That was his business. And he made a lucrative living creating silver idols of Artemis for the worshipers there. So why did he start the riot? Because Ephesian citizens coming to faith in Jesus Christ was hurting the largest industry in the city, idol making. Now, now we get a sense of why Paul was closing this letter with a pep talk on spiritual warfare. And so having planted the church in Ephesus and having gone back there to preach and teach for three years, the Apostle Paul pens this letter. The first three chapters, he explains the theological position that the believer has in Christ. And in the last three chapters, he lays out practical applications from the first three. In his final 10 verses of teaching, in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, the apostle now pulls back the curtain on the spiritual realm to reveal what we do not see, but we need to see. Or at least we need to be aware of. And thus, our big idea for today is is this. All Christ followers have been equipped to stand and win in spiritual warfare. All Christ followers have been equipped to stand and win in spiritual warfare. Last week, we learned in chapter 6, verses 10 to 12, that all Christ followers have been drafted into a spiritual war between God and the devil. We also learned that the power needed to fight this battle does not come from ourselves, but rather from the Lord. That's why Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, in verse 10. Our adversary, we also learned, is a fallen angel who attempted a mutiny in heaven before the creation account, but lost and was cast out by God along with one third of the angels who followed him. The enemy we face goes by many names that describe his character. The deceiver, the accuser, the tempter, the evil one, the father of lies, and much more. He most often uses covert actions to deceive people and to undermine the Lord's work. He's used some of you, and me included, from time to time. And he's so crafty and so good, we don't even realize it. And so today, the apostle will break down the spiritual armor we need in order to win the war. If you would, look at your Bibles with me. I'm going to read, starting in verse 10 again, just for context. I'm going to read verses 10 to 14. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in this evil day, and having done all, 
to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Here's the first of two points on your outline that Paul has for us today. The first is putting on the whole armor of God enables us to stand firm in the battle. Putting on the whole armor of God enables us to stand firm in the battle. Just as modern-day soldiers load up their bodies with equipment before going on a mission, or just as law enforcement officers put on bulletproof vests before a drug raid, followers of Jesus Christ need to gear up each day before they go out into their battlefield. So Paul says, take up the whole armor of God. Some translations say, put on This is repeated in verse 16 as well. The apostles commanded, it's a sobering reminder that even though all Christ followers have been drafted into the spiritual war, not all, not all, are using the resources God has given them. The phrase translated whole armor of God is intentional here as well. It comes from a Greek word that literally means the complete armor. Now, now, don't miss this, because what Paul is saying is don't just pick up the sword, but not the shield, and don't pick up the shield, but not the sword, and so on. Put on the whole armor, all of what he's about to describe here for us. Now, the reason for putting on this complete armor is explained in verse 13. You see it there in your Bibles. Paul says to withstand or to stand firm. In the ESV translation, the word stand first appears in verse 11, and then it's repeated in verses 13 and 14. Stand comes from a word that means to stand your ground or to hold your place. Withstand in the ESV is the same word with a prefix added to it to put a little more oomph behind it. Withstand means to resist, to oppose, or to set yourself up against something. In other words, I I would paraphrase what Paul is saying in this way. The reason we need to withstand and stand is because the adversary and his demons will always be advancing. They are relentless and they are unyielding. They will never stop. The adversary wants every country, every state, every city every home, and every soul in his kingdom. And he wants every Christ follower disabled and disarmed so they are not a threat to him. Next, Paul breaks down the armor that is available to us. It's widely accepted that his inspiration for these next few verses came from having to look at Roman soldiers all day while he was incarcerated. And so he uses a series of metaphors to help us visualize what the whole armor of God looks like. The first metaphor is, letter A, the belt of truth. Coming from verse 14. Now, after I list one of the five defensive pieces of armor, 
I'm also going to tell you what I think it's designed to be a countermeasure for. A countermeasure, as many of you know, is an item, a resource, or an action that counteracts an offensive attack. And so in this case, I think the belt of truth is a countermeasure for the lie that there is no truth. When a Roman soldier was dressing for battle, the first piece that he would put on was his belt. The belt allowed him to tuck his tunic in when he was running, and it held the breastplate in place, and it served as an anchor upon which he could hang his weapons. Holding on to the truth was critical for the church in Ephesus because there were false teachers, false apostles, competing with Paul by preaching false gospels. And nothing's changed today. That's still happening today. Truth, in this particular context here, means to conform with facts or to agree with a standard. And so for the believer, uh, truth is the doctrines of our faith as revealed in scriptures. In the scriptures, excuse me. Truth is what God has said about himself and about us and about the world. However, one of the lies the deceiver is spreading all over the world today is that truth is subjective instead of objective. You can see this, his work in our culture, by the popularity of the new phrase, speak your truth. Have you heard that one on the news lately or on our talk show or a podcast? Or... This is my truth. In other words, the world now says that truth is no longer something outside of us, meaning it's objective, but rather the world says truth is inside of us, meaning it's subjective. According to this new definition of truth, no one is allowed to question someone else's beliefs, accusations, or correct them if they are wrong. And they can't do the same to you unless, unless you disagree with their tribe. And they, thus everybody is right and nobody is wrong unless your tribe questions another tribe's victimhood. That is not truth. Quite frankly, it's hogwash. And I think I'm being nice with that choice of word. Now, the adversary loves this new strategy that he's been implementing here in this era of postmodernism. Because those who buy into it will be less likely to agree with the truth that God has stated in his word. And that is that all people have been separated from God by their sin and are condemned to hell. And our only hope is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and conquered death through his resurrection so we could have forgiveness and eternal life. Now the world says in response to the gospel, oh, that's just your opinion. That's, or that's your truth. That's not my truth. Or the world says, how dare you wound me with your words?
So the belt of truth. Next, Paul says to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. The countermeasure that this is for are accusations that we aren't good enough to be used by God. The breastplate of righteousness. It's the countermeasure for accusations that we aren't good enough to be used by God. The breastplate covered the Roman soldier's body from his neck to his thighs. It had two parts, the front and then the back. It it covered what soldiers and law enforcement officers call center mass, where all the vital organs are. This breastplate was usually made of bronze. The apostle was most likely alluding to the fact that none of us has any righteousness of our own, but only the imputed righteousness that's available through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And remembering this part of the gospel allows us to resist Satan's accusations that our sins are not forgiven or his temptations to get us to sin more. You see, because anyone who who understands what Christ did in order to provide righteousness for them will hate their own sin and pursue holiness or righteousness. And so... All Christ followers have been equipped to stand and to win in spiritual warfare. Next, if you would look at verse 15 with me, Paul continues his use of metaphors from the Roman soldier's armor. He says, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So here's letter C. Shoes with the gospel of peace. And this is a countermeasure for the lie that Christians are self-righteous haters. Now this is, this is probably the most difficult verse to interpret in the passage, and, and there is some disagreement amongst New Testament commentators as far as what Paul was exactly meaning here. But here's, here's what we do know, and here's what I think he means. Roman soldiers were known to have shoes that were studded with nails or cleats to ensure solid footing. And here Paul seems to be saying that just as, just as shoes carry us everywhere we go, they protect our feet and they give us traction, the peace of the gospel and the gospel and how it can bring peace between God and men should carry us into battle as well. In other words, our motivation in spiritual warfare should not be to dethrone the government, to criticize politicians, to fight for things to go back to the way they used to be when we were little, or to prove that unbelievers are wrong about everything. That is not what our goal should be, or our motivation. Instead, instead, what Paul is saying is that What should carry or motivate us is the desire to see God glorified through the spreading of the gospel. And it's that gospel which makes peace between God and sinners. Our desire should be a a burden for the world, a, 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 a heartbreaking for lost people who are deceived and in bondage to their own sin and lost and blinded by the adversary. 
as opposed to being angry at them that they don't see what we see when they've not been regenerated with the Holy Spirit and they don't know God's Word. So we should desire to, and we should be ready to share the gospel more than we want to be right. I think that's important for some of us who are active on social media and love to comment on political topics. You've probably heard me say before, it is possible to win an argument on social media but lose your witness. Next, in verse 16, Paul says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So here's letter D, the shield of faith. It is the countermeasure for the lie that God's word is not true. A Roman soldier's shield was made of wood. It was about two and a half feet wide and four feet tall. It was trimmed with metal and covered with leather, doused in water in order to help extinguish flaming arrows. Such arrows would be up to seven feet long and have an iron tip that was dipped in pitch, lit on fire, and shot around 30 to 35 yards. If the arrow was able to light the soldier or his shield on fire, it would obviously incite a panic, causing the soldier to throw his shield away, making him more vulnerable. And so how does faith shield us? And by the way, I think it's important to notice, Paul is not saying the faith. We don't have the article the there. He's saying faith, which is Believing in the word of God and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. So he's not talking about the faith of the gospel, but instead having faith in the Lord and in his word. The point I think Paul is trying to make here is this. When the adversary shoots flaming arrows in order to get us to doubt our salvation to doubt the reliability of God's word, to doubt the power of prayer, to doubt God's love for us, or to doubt that there's a purpose for our suffering, we will need to have the shield of faith to deflect such arrows. And so we do that, again, by believing the word of God and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. Next, if you would look at verse 17, Paul says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so, letter E, the helmet of salvation. It is the countermeasure for the lie that this life is all there is. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul encourages the Thessalonians to wear a helmet he calls the hope of salvation. If this is what he has in mind here when writing the Ephesians, then the apostle is encouraging the Ephesians and us to keep our eye on the final prize, the final destination of our journey in the heat of battle. 
You see, we can be bold and we can be brave in spiritual warfare if we realize we'll be in eternity exponentially longer than we'll be here. And and remembering the hope of our salvation frees us up to live with an eternal perspective, knowing that our time on earth is temporary, but our time with Jesus in eternity is forever. And so that frees us up to be able to go, kind of like Paul said in Philippians 1.21, to live as Christ, to die as gain. I don't care about my life here, so long as God is glorified. I don't care what he does with my life here, because I live for him. And however he wants to use me here on earth, that's fine. If it means I suffer, great. If it means I have to die an early death, great. If it means I have to be poor, great. Whatever the Lord wants, because I will be with him forever and will enjoy all the things I've ever wanted, most importantly, Intimacy with my Savior forever. And so the great saints throughout church history, including Paul himself, knew that. And they saw their lives and they saw the world that way. My life like a vapor, to use words of of James. A mist. It appears for a moment in the span of eternity and then I'm gone. But eternity forever. And so I want to make my life count for Christ while I'm here. Next, you'll see in verse 17, Paul references the sword of the Spirit. That's letter F. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Greek word the apostle uses here refers to a small sword used in hand-to-hand combat that was about two inches wide and two feet long. The Word of God is also, interestingly, referred to as a sword in the book of Hebrews. That's Hebrews 4.12, in case you're interested. And the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1, Revelation 2, and Revelation 19, the word of God is referred to as the sword of the Spirit. The Lord himself refers to his word as a consuming fire and a hammer that shatters things. In Jeremiah Chapter 23, verse 29. So it's worth noting that this is one of only two offensive weapons mentioned in this passage. The other one being prayer. Now, Jesus provides the best example for us on how to wield the sword of the Spirit in Matthew chapter 4. When he was being tested by Satan in the wilderness... Every time Satan came through with a temptation or a lie, the Lord would respond with a countermeasure with Scripture, and he would shut the enemy down. Satan would say this. Jesus would reply, yes, but it's written. Satan would say this. Jesus would reply, yes, but it's written. Perfect model for us. So when Satan tempts you to give in to a sin that you've struggled with, You can say, yes, but it's written, and quote scripture back to him and to yourself. That's one way to wield the sword. And so just as every soldier needs his rifle and every police officer needs his handgun, every believer, every professing believer 
no exceptions, needs to know how to handle the word. It is not something just for pastors and elders and Bible study leaders to do. Every believer must know how. Because every believer has been drafted into this spiritual war. And if you don't know how, and you don't learn how, you will be, as they say in the military, a sitting duck. And so, all Christ followers have been equipped to stand and to win at spiritual warfare. Let's look at the last couple of verses here, verses 18 to 20. Paul says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Here's number two on your outline. Praying in the Spirit provides power, the power needed to win. Praying in the Spirit provides the power needed to win. Prayer is the second offensive weapon that Paul mentions in this passage. In order to gain access to the power that prayer provides, the apostle says we should pray at all times. This is the first of two words that he uses for prayer in the original text. This particular word refers to prayer in general. Um, the first word there, pray at all times. But notice how he says we are to do this at all times consistently and in the Spirit. Now, does that mean we should get all worked up in emotional fervor? No. So what does in the Spirit mean? Well, similar to what being filled with the Spirit meant back in chapter 5, verse 18... To pray in the Spirit means to pray for the things the Spirit would desire. Well, how do we know that? We know it by praying God's Word and learning God's Word. When we pray God's Word, we almost always pray His will. And so, to pray in the Spirit is to take Scripture verses and turn them into prayers, to voice them as prayers. Or to pray for things we know God wants. Paul models this perfectly in verse, verses 18 and 19, or, well, sorry, rather 19 and 20, where he requests prayer for something obviously God would want for him in Rome. And that is to proclaim the mystery of the gospel boldly and clearly. That God would use Paul to bring sinners to faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul asked the Ephesians to pray in the Spirit by asking them to pray for something God clearly would want. People to get saved. Next, the second word that Paul uses for prayer is more specific. The first one was general, and that's the word that you see in the ESV, supplication. Some translations are into this, petitions. The second word for prayer specifically re re refers to uh, requests or petitions. 
these prayers aren't just to be for what we need, but also for what other saints need as well. In fact, keeping alert, as you see there in the text in verse 18, can mean being so connected in the lives of other believers that you are aware of what they are facing in their spiritual battle and able to pray for them as well. I also think keeping alert can refer to being aware of what's happening in the larger spiritual battle throughout the world so we can pray for that as well. I think, I think there's wisdom in watching the news or reading the news in moderation <laughs> wisely to see what is happening in the world, what God is doing, what the adversary is doing, so then you can pray for what you see happening. This seems to be why Paul requested prayer for the larger battle he was fighting for the gospel in Rome. I mean, just think of it. If this was happening today, uh, you know, Fox News and CNN and NBC and ABC, CBS, they'd all be giving updates on Paul's imprisonment. And when, when his trial date was set and how many times they'd been moved back and who he was corresponding with and there'd be paparazzi outside the place he was incarcerated capturing video of who came to see him and so on and so forth. So Paul was, he was headline news back then. And everybody wanted to see what's going to happen with this guy who's the He's the poster child. He's the face of this new movement called Christianity. So Paul's asking for prayer that God would use him. Notice, notice, it's interesting. Did you see how Paul doesn't pray or, excuse me, he doesn't ask them, pray that I'd be released as soon as possible because it's really cold here in this, in this prison. Notice he doesn't, pray, he doesn't say, would you pray that I'd get released because I really miss some of my favorite food dishes at home. Instead, he asks that God would use him where he's at. And he asks, he asks that the Lord would use him specifically to proclaim the gospel. As I ought to speak, I should do this. It is the right thing, according to Paul, in verse 20. The extremely gifted and insightful Charles Spurgeon provided one of the best encouragements I have ever read to pray and to have a strong, robust prayer life. And since he says it so much better than I can, I'm going to ask him to help me, and I'm going to share with you what he wrote. Spurgeon says regarding prayer in spiritual warfare, when you cannot use your sword, you may take up the weapon of prayer. Your powder may be damp, your bowstring may be relaxed, but the weapon of prayer need never be out of order. Satan laughs at the javelin, but he trembles at prayer. Swords and spears need to be sharpened, but prayer never rusts. Devils may surround you on all sides, but the way upward is always open. Prayer gains an audience with heaven in the dead of night, in the middle of business, in the heat of the noonday, and in the shades of evening. You may not always get what you ask for, 
but you shall always have your real needs supplied. So I hope that encourages you as that has encouraged me this week to beef up my prayer life. So, what do we do now? Well, Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And I know you want to be blessed, and I know I want to be blessed. So we need to be willing to do the word of God even when it's difficult. But we know by faith it will always be worth it. And so this scripture passage in particular is easy to come up with some applications for because Paul's already provided them for us in the text. They're in the form of his imperatives. Take up the whole armor of God and pray at all times. I would boil those down to these two applications. First, learn to wield the word. Learn to wield the word. To wield means to hold or to uh, brandish or to use a weapon. And the weapon, of course, I'm referring to is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Over the years, many of you have heard me exhort you in many different ways for many different reasons to spend time daily in God's word. I've not only done so, well, excuse me, I have done so not only because God's word commands us, so it's expected of you if you profess faith in Christ, but I've also done it because I care deeply for your soul. Some of you have responded well to those exhortations over the last few years, while others of you have not. Let's just be honest. Ephesians 6 might just be the strongest argument for learning the word. You see, because if you don't know how to use God's word, you will have no effective way to fight back in spiritual warfare. And you will live a life that is deceived, defeated, discouraged, and neutralized by the evil one. And so, and so if you find yourself wondering, well, how come God's not doing anything in my life? And how come I can't see what God is doing? One of the first questions, if I was you, I would ask myself is, how's my time in God's word and prayer? Am I really devoted to learning how to handle the word? You see, you cannot put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, or the helmet of salvation if you don't know God's word, because all those things are rooted in God's word too. On the other hand, believers who meditate and memorize God's word not only survive the war, but they also have God stories they can tell about battles they have won using the word. And so the importance of the scriptures in spiritual warfare should motivate you to actively take notes on Sunday morning and to bring your own Bible and have it open in front of you. It should should motivate you to be disciplined about your morning devotions throughout the week. And it should motivate you, because of the war that's going on in your life, to be committed to your small group Bible study 
to know that I have got to get there so that I can survive spiritually. And how you view or how you handle the word Sunday morning, whether you bring your Bible or not, whether you open it or not, whether you make time to get into God's word throughout the week, and whether you are faithful to your small group Bible study, and whether you get your homework done and you are prepared to discuss it on a regular basis in your small group, all those things reveal what you think about God's word. All those things reveal whether you think God's word is what he says it is, the sword of the spirit. You must learn to wield the word as a soldier drafted into God's army. It is not an option. If you don't, you are simply going out into the battlefield with no weapon, only armor, carrying a shield, maybe. But I think even that is a stretch. Because again, if you don't know the word and how to wield it, you will not know what the helmet of salvation is. You will not know, understand righteousness. You will not understand truth. So really... Biblically speaking, now that I think about it, you'd be going out naked into the battlefield. Now, of course, all of us would say, that's foolish. Who would do that? That's what I'm saying. Next, pray at all times. So the first offensive weapon was... Learn to wield the sword of the Spirit. Next, uh, the second application would be to pray at all times. Some believers consider prayer so simple that they take its power for granted. Other believers make prayer so difficult that they miss out on its power altogether. Every professing Christ follower should have three types of prayer that they regularly engage in. All these are supported in the Scripture. These three eyes that I've got on the screen here. We should practice immersive prayer in which we spend at least 10 to 15 minutes abiding in the Lord's presence after our morning time in the Word throughout the week. Now, don't do, this is not, do not do what one guy told me when I was ministering back in the Chicago area. He said he did his devotions and prayer time on his morning commute into the city. Really? How would you like it if, if someone that claimed to love you said, the only time I have for you is in the car driving to work? So this is, this is time where you're doing nothing else. The phone is off. You are by yourself. You are not distracted. It's solitude with the Lord in prayer. We should also practice intercessory prayer in which we speak to the Lord on behalf of others. This is healthy for us because it helps us get our eyes off ourselves and it helps us engage in the battle with other believers who are struggling with health issues or sin issues or discouragement. We should practice intermittent prayer in which we periodically and spontaneously speak to the Lord throughout our day. Some are familiar with this, praying without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That would, be, that would be where you're talking to the Lord in your car, or maybe on your way to a meeting, or maybe as you walk into the grocery store, and you're saying, Lord, please, would you 
Would you help this person? Would you please be with them? Give them some encouragement today. Lord, would you, would you please save my family member who's far from you and doesn't know you? Would you use me when I talk to them later today and give me an opportunity to share the gospel with them? And then you walk into Target. But please, please consider this about prayer. Every believer standing with the Lord right now in heaven wishes they prayed more on earth because they now see the effect their prayers had on the spiritual realm. Now, I have to admit this, I get, I get discouraged in my own prayer life, and you probably do too, when I don't see answers in the physical realm. But man, I, I expect I'm going to be blown away when I'm with the Lord someday, and I see how many of my prayers made an impact in the spiritual realm that I couldn't see. But believers that are with the Lord right now can see that. Oh, if we could just have their perspective now. Imagine what it'll be like when you're, if you know Jesus, when you're, you're with the Lord someday and he pulls out the high definition, big screen TV, and he replays your life and he shows you, you see, when you were praying here, here's what I was doing and you didn't know it. You thought I didn't answer that prayer on that date? Yeah, well, guess what? I sent angels to do this. They defeated these demons for you. And that door opened, and you went through, and you didn't even know what was happening in the spiritual realm. Or you think you failed when you shared your faith with that coworker of yours? Well, guess what? Five years later, they came to faith in Christ because you were praying for them, even though you had left the company. But it was your impact on their life, sharing the gospel and planting the seed that brought them into eternity. So pray at all times, immersively, and doing intercessory prayer and intermittent prayer. Well, in 1963, comic book creators Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Don Heck and Jack Kirby introduced readers to a new superhero named Iron Man. It was in the comic book called Tales of Suspense, number 39. The hero's true identity is a wealthy playboy genius inventor, owner of Stark Industries, an international arms dealer, a man named Tony Stark. During a weapons uh, demonstration in the jungles of Vietnam, Stark is severely injured when his own bomb sends shrapnel into his chest. And after being captured by, the Viet, excuse me, by a Viet Cong warlord, Stark is told that he will not be released until he makes a new weapon for his captors. Instead of fulfilling their wishes, Stark builds a chest plate that will not only prevent the shrapnel from entering his heart, but also it will power a state-of-the-art suit of armor that allows him to escape. After returning to the United States, Stark upgrades the suit and decides to use it to combat evil in the world. As many of you know, Iron Man's story was brought to the silver screen for the first time in 2008 when actor Robert Downey Jr. Jr. donned the suit for the first of three motion pictures. 
Now, there's something I want to bring to your attention about Iron Man's story that you may have overlooked or missed while enjoying his movies. And it's this. Without his suit of armor, Tony Stark is an impulsive, prideful womanizer with shrapnel in his chest cavity, and he has all the other limitations that come with being human. However, however, when Tony Stark puts on his suit of armor, he becomes a totally different person. He becomes a calculating, selfless, sacrificing superhero whom villains fear and citizens cheer for. My point is this. If you will put on the whole armor of God and stand firm, you can become a totally different person that the devil fears and God cheers for. See, all Christ followers have been equipped to stand and win at spiritual warfare. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.